Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in February of 2017. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, featuring our returning guest, Mr. Fred Harrison. Mr. Harrison received his bachelor's from Oxford University and his master's from the University of London. He is a veteran journalist who has served in multiple news agencies such as The People and Wellington Journal. In 1988, he became the research director for the Land Research Trust in London and has advised several corporations and international governments on tax and economic policy. Fred places an emphasis on the housing market and its interaction with the economy as a whole. He is the author of many books, including The Corruption of Economics, The Power in the Land, and A Philosophy for a Fair Society, all of which critique mainstream economic thinking. Mr. Harrison joined the Henry George School to discuss the consequences of generational poverty and inequality, why quantitative easing will fail to quell the next financial crisis, and why techno-billionaires love the idea of basic income. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Welcome, Fred, to Smart Talk. Um, it's really Good a pleasure to, to have you here and have this conversation with you, especially with what's going on in the United Kingdom today. The political parties there seem to appear to be showing a new interest in tax reform. What do you think are the real prospects for change in the UK? Well, it's true to say that the political parties realize that for financial reasons, they have got to do something about the property tax. They know that uh, within the next 10 or 20 years, they're simply not going to be able to fund the National Health Service or the care of elderly people because the money just won't be there. And therefore, something has to be done. And there are other reasons, like young people today are not only suffering from a, a reduction in real value of their wages, but they're finding it, many of them, almost impossible to acquire homes. So the political parties have got their backs to the wall. And one of the subjects that they're very gently looking at is how to reform the property tax. But they're doing it in a very anemic way. They are frightened. They're frightened of the homeowner who wants to protect the capital gains that have been accumulated over their lifetime of the ownership of their homes. So although the political parties are looking at the uh, ways in which they might revise the existing property tax because it works in a very regressive way, they're not being ambitious. Now, uh, the think tanks in London, some of the major ones that have commissioned uh, a battery of experts to help them to explore issues like uh, the intergenerational gap, the prejudice that's being shown uh, towards young people by the elderly for financial reasons, for example, uh, they've commissioned uh, reports which far from solving the problems, are actually adding to them because they are trying to fine-tune the existing property taxes and are creating uh, worse uh, problems as a consequence without actually calculating 
the deadweight losses, the losses that come with uh, uh, taxes other than the one directed purely at the rent of land. Uh, and so what we have is a glorious mess. And it's this opportunity which those of us who think we know how we can resolve the financial crisis, uh, we have this enormous responsibility to reframe the narrative, the, la the big picture uh, under which we might project tax reform so that we overcome some of the uh, mental blockages, whether it's in the uh, among the capitalists on the right or the socialists on the left. We somehow have to embrace them all in a single kind of national debate that constructively leads to the realization that there really is only one solution. Now, well, me, the that so, raises the really important question of how does how do you and others who hold the same views get on the national stage, get that national attention to bring those you know, parties together to listen and come up with you know, reasonable conclusions of what the prospects are for change? How do you well, get there? Using the present Georgist narrative, I don't believe we will succeed in doing that because for too long, we have sought to argue the case for land taxation on the basis of pure reason uh, and fact. We sought to explain the reasonableness uh, and the effectiveness of land taxation. And we've assumed that people's imaginations would be aroused by such a discussion and that they would see, that they would have the vision to understand that this means uh, so many wonderful changes happening within the community at large. But in fact, people can't see that big picture. And it really is up to us to reframe our narrative in order to uh, capture the public imagination. And it's at that point we'll get invited into the debate. So I've been working now ever since we failed to persuade Russia, the post-Soviet Russia, uh, to come to uh, terms with the need to accept the market economy, but not the privatization of rent. Since that failure, I've had to ask myself some very difficult questions, which is, for example, why is it that we can't make the breakthrough in the West where everybody would actually gain from the restructuring of the tax regime? And I finally come to the conclusion that we have to shift the basis of the discussion away from purely arguing the empirical case from reason and, and bringing in the moral arguments, but using language that would resonate with ordinary folk. So in the UK, for example, the biggest barrier to change is the middle class homeowner. How do we overcome the middle class homeowners prejudice against this tax reform? Uh, uh, actually capturing the imaginations of that group of people so that they actively support our proposal. And it's the moral language which needs to be developed to not to offend them, although it, there may be an element of that, but if, if we have to offend them in such a way that they end up saying, we have nowhere to uh, turn to except to face up to our responsibilities to engage in a constructive discussion about whether this proposal really is the way to go. 
I've got a bit of news, a bit of news for you, Ed. Here in Britain, uh, we are seeing the preparations for a new political party to leap on the scene. It has tried to keep itself secret, uh, but it was outed by one of our newspapers a month or so ago. And so they're going to go public uh, later this year in uh, 2018. And the very first part of their agenda is tax reform, and the land tax is in that document. Now, if, if we can help them, and by the way, they have 50 million pounds uh, of funding to uh, present a real challenge to the other political parties. Now, if they get their narrative, their manifesto uh, right, they will constitute a real threat to the other political parties. And that will force the other political parties either to defend the status quo, and nobody really wants to do that because we all know there's something badly wrong with the way things are, or they will have to move into the realm of tax reform uh, and engage with us on how uh, it, it, there should be a consensus that involves everybody in this one fiscal reform, shifting taxes off wages and profits and onto people's uh, obligations to pay rent into the public purse. Well, Fred, in the United States, uh, the, one of the problems of income inequality and wealth inequality is generational. I mean, there's a, there's a, a generation of young adults not able to really make their way into home ownership. And it sounds as though that's the same thing in Britain as well. Now, exactly. here, with uh, mortgage rates, mortgage interest rates being at rock bottom, that has really driven up land prices and made made housing less and less affordable in many of our markets. Now, it sounds as though the same dynamic is occurring in Britain. Is there a potential for a generational conflict here over over tax policy that, that arises because so many young people are left out of the um, potential to become homeowners? The answer is yes. And that's why so many London think tanks are trying to find a solution. One of them recently said, oh, when young people come of the age of, I think it was 22, they should be given 10,000 pounds. And that was supposed to be like a deposit for a home or to start up a new business. But that's trivial. Uh, it indicates the lack of real imagination uh, of knowing how to overcome what is a systemic problem. And yes, we do have that serious problem. And it's not only the low interest rates that uh, is causing land prices to go up, but we now have additional information that shows that when productivity drops, one consequence of that is a rise in land prices. And so when you add low interest rates, uh, low productivity, all of which tend to push up land prices, we can see that this is a, a no-win situation for anybody, because even the landowners will end up suffering. Uh, and uh, my problem politically is that we don't have enough time left before a repeat of 2008 when the uh, next disaster will break. And when that happens, it won't be just the banks that are bankrupt. Governments will be uh, facing the fact that they can't pump yet more money, quantitative easing, 
into the system because that will just multiply the chaos. So uh, I really fear the next 2008 event, which uh, we can confidently predict will begin uh, nine years from now, around 2026 is my forecast for when property prices on a global scale will hit the peak and then start to go down. And when that happens, we've got a global disaster that will dwarf what happened back in 2008. So we really have to find some new solutions. And right now in the UK, you have the added challenge of uh, Britain's departure from the European markets and Brexit. So how do, how does Brexit play into this whole discussion of, of domestic tax reform? I mean, what's, what's really the prospect of getting the politicians to really focus on domestic reforms while the challenge of pulling Britain out of, out of the European market? Well, the, Brexit is both a difficulty but also an opportunity. At present, the uh, Theresa May government is preoccupied with trying to find some solutions to keep everybody happy over Brexit, which means they're neglecting domestic policy. Uh, but the virtue of coming out of the European Union is that uh, the British government would then have a free hand over fiscal policy as well as trade policy. You see, at the moment, we are anchored into the VAT uh, system, which uh, Brussels insists upon, and uh, VAT is one of the most regressive taxes. Well, outside the European Union, we could uh, get rid of or at least diminish the VAT burden uh, and replace it with a more benign source of revenue. So uh, the political parties are so uh, caught up in the discussions about Brexit that they're not focusing clearly on uh, how to run a sustainable economy after Brexit, which is where this new political party, if it, if it shapes itself up properly, and I will seek to help them to do that, frankly, uh, will be able to come in and score some major points. If nobody does um, offer a new narrative in the UK, then we can see the risks of going in the way that Italy has gone, where they have now a coalition government of two parties that want to wreck the European Union effectively, uh, or uh, who knows, we might end up with a Donald Trump uh, mm. and then that would be just as bad or even I worse. I would never wish that on anyone. <laughs> I, uh, what, what also but, occurs to me is it's always been interesting to me that the people in Britain dominated by a landed aristocracy for centuries have not really been able to grasp the fact that that the economy has been, been dominated by this rentier group. And now it seems as though in Scotland, at least, there's been uh, a number of years of dialogue about the power of the landed aristocracy that remains there. And it's resulted in the potential for Scotland to vote to leave the United Kingdom. Is this new party that's being formed, does it have a Scottish component? Is there you know, potential here for unity, or do you expect to see the Scots still move further and further away from their involvement in the UK? Well, we don't know yet. The new political party is going to want to get people elected in Scotland. It wants to keep the uh, United Kingdom united. Uh, 
the Scottish nationalists are not actually making much headway in terms of popular support now. Uh, and they wouldn't actually achieve their ambitions by breaking away from the UK uh, uh, economically. And so th there's a general state of confusion, which therefore comes back to our responsibility. We have to clarify the issues in such a way that the people of Scotland realise that a new social contract is indeed needed, but it's not one where they break away from the United Kingdom. So the, the scale of the work that falls on those who understand the model of tax reform that favours shifting taxes off people's earned incomes and onto the rents of land is enormous. Uh, where, which, wherever you look, there is a problem which only we can solve, but we need a narrative that comprehensively deals with all the elements of the what is a global problem. Well, quite quite frankly, you know, our efforts as activists in support of this this idea have not been very effective, and we've not been particularly effective working as a, in conjunction with one another. You know, what do we need to do to strengthen the, the Georgist movement? Uh, what does the movement need to do to become more effective in getting this message across to our you know, stakeholders and others so that, so that we really have momentum to push it forward? I'm not sure that there's anything that the movement itself can do as a movement. I think the inspiration will have to come from individuals who just pop up with the right kind of ideas, the right narrative, the tone. Um, and uh, we have to hope that that inspires others. Um, Henry George didn't have a movement behind him. He just had a wonderful idea, but the, the capacity to capture the popular imagination with the language that he used. Well, now, we can't repeat Henry George's language today, so we need uh, to find a way of reinterpreting the, the well-established economics uh, in a a framework or a, a language that resonates with people uh, in the 21st century. And if we succeed in doing that, and I'm sure there must be some of us who are working on that, and uh, frankly, I believe that it may be possible to come up with a solution within uh, a short period of time. Uh, I really believe that there is a possibility that we will succeed on that front. Quite a challenge for us, Fred, as individuals. Uh, as, as I have mentioned uh, to you in private conversation, you know, my own activist activities here in the United States uh, are not really finding a strong level of support, even from people who, when they understand the moral issue, they understand the threat to our society are still apathetic about becoming involved in any change. They're so comfortable with the status quo. It's like the devil they know is better than the devil that they don't know. And getting people to embrace change uh, is, is really difficult. Right now, the, the on the rise here 
is really the, the socialist movement. It's really in response to what people see as a failed system of capitalism. And so we have, for example, because of Bernie Sanders' campaign, uh, the Green Party is becoming very socialist uh, dominated here in the United States. Whether the Green Party will actually win office, uh, get people elected is, is hard to say. So far, it hasn't been successful. But we can see that there is a great dissatisfaction with the financial system, with the banks, and with capitalism in general. Is the same sort of frustration existing in in the UK and other countries that you've visited and and uh, toured in? Exactly the same. And in the UK, we have Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party moving right over to the left to effectively being Marxist in their outlook and in their intentions. Well, the British voters won't put up with a Marxist uh, government. But nonetheless, what this tells us is the poverty of philosophy that prevails at the present time, that a, a bankrupt capitalist model uh, is now generally recognized as not having the solutions, and yet all we can hear people talking about is a bankrupt socialist model replacing it. Uh, there is this need for the alternative, and that really does place a huge burden of responsibility on people like you, Ed, and me, and our colleagues, who really grasp the essence of what it would take to shift the structure of the system away from both the capitalist and socialist models in favor of something that most people would find appealing. And so to come to your point about uh, people who just are lethargic, complacent, won't make the change, this is where we have to confront them. This is why we need to sometimes use language that may actually offend them. So back in 2012, for example, in a book called The Traumatized Society, I talked about the culture of cheating. Now, right. in the UK, at anywhere, in the UK, people do not like cheats. And we know that when people go to football matches, they will shout down anybody who cheats on the field, right? And to suggest to the middle-class homeowner that Although involuntarily he and she is caught up in a culture of cheating, will actually stop them in their tracks and will force them to engage in a discussion because their first instinct will be to say, I'm not a cheat. But then when the economics of cheating is spelt out and when they recognize those economics as being precisely what is captivating them, which they are defending, and if we've told them that that is actually a process of cheating, for instance, the next generation, making it difficult for their children and their grandchildren to get decent jobs and homes, then they will stop and think about it. But at that point, we have to have the cathartic uh, uh, language and solutions, the vision to help them to see that there is a way forward that gives everybody hope. And we have to nail that issue of hope. If we can't give uh, people hope, then really there is no prospect. So ours is a very complex challenge. We have to pitch our message at different layers. Yes, we have to retain the reason and the empirical evidence, but there's the moral dimension, there's the vision of hope, and that's all got to be encapsulated in a single narrative which can go on the talk shows. Well, very difficult, I know. 
but I don't see people actually working on that as a problem. How to reframe the word so that they capture the essence of what we're saying. And uh, I don't know that it can be done in an organized way by a movement of people. Uh, maybe it can, but it needs leadership, doesn't it, in that case? Otherwise, it may need, it's it may need marketing expertise. I mean, people, uh, people are able to sell all sorts of strange ideas and products and, and, and marketing seems to find a way to find uh, to find a way to get the people to embrace uh, all sorts of strange things that they wouldn't ordinarily be inclined to do. I, in my teaching, uh, one of the one of the issues that I face is at least here in the United States that there is a widespread acceptance that speculating in land is a perfectly legitimate way to, to build a fortune. It is. It goes back to our entire history, all the way to the founding fathers. George Washington, the hero of the revolution, our first president, he was the largest land speculator of his era, and he became rich because of it. And he was always concerned about, about buying additional land at low cost and being able to sell it. Uh, you know, almost all of our founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, were men of property. And so today we have people who still think that that is the way to gain wealth. Um, it may be a psychological barrier in the United States, but it surprises me that it remains a psychological barrier in the UK or in Europe where there were centuries of domination of the people by, by landed aristocracies. Um, it seems like the challenge should be less intense in countries with that history than in a place like the United States or Australia uh, or South Africa, for example. Yes, well, up till the end of the 19th century, uh, Henry George's message was an easy sell because 90% of the families were tenants. They rented their homes. Uh, now we have like 70% who own their homes. So there has been this huge shift, but it's more subtle than that. The economics uh, of uh, capitalism have been reframed to exclude land and rent and therefore pu the public awareness of those issues, which is why we have to reintroduce those concepts in a manner that uh, resonates with people. And that's a big job, but it's got to be done very fast if we're going to avoid the catastrophe, which is not far down the road. Uh, we have to do it in a way that can be digested by the man in the street. So a lot of work. And yes, if we can get the support of marketing people to help, then fine. But they only come in when the message is all but the, the elements of the message are already in place, and then they will take it and uh, uh, turn them into the sound bites that can be used on radio talk shows. But until then, the, the, their skills are wasted, and it's really up to us, I think, to uh, get beyond discussing the, the more mundane issues over rent and to look at the big picture again. And I'm going to have a crack at that. For instance, you, you say that um, uh, in the States, uh, and it's the case here, 
the idea of reaping huge capital gains from activity in the property market is seen as perfectly legitimate. How do we overcome that? Uh, well, I've just um, reframed that process uh, for the purposes of a document that I'm submitting to a parliamentary committee. And I've described it as activity that's on the back of uh, a slush fund. The, our parliament has a slush fund. It pours money out of the public purse without uh, the uh, law to permit them to do that, without the consent of the public. But through this slush fund, parliament pours money into the privileged pockets of a relatively few people in Britain. Now, that kind of a picture will really stop people in their tracks. What do I mean that Parliament has a slush, fam a slush fund? Uh, well, let's talk about it. How does it work? It works because taxpayers' money is invested in infrastructure, for example. A large net income is created, which nobody uh, uh, monitors, nobody audits, nobody's held accountable for that value. It's just allowed to filter out into the ether to cascade down into the pockets of landowners. That is a slush fund. And we've got to stop it. If we want a real and authentic democracy, we have to hold our parliament, our lawmakers accountable for that measurable value, which belongs to all taxpayers. Uh, well, there is a point of discussion, a way of presenting the case so that we can say to the people who are land speculators, which includes the ordinary families in Britain and in the United States, look, uh, what you're doing is perfectly lawful, but it involves benefiting from a slush fund that is not authorized by the democratic political process. Your elected officials are not held accountable for that value. It just disappears out of the public purse when it ought to belong to everybody. And if we collected that revenue, we wouldn't be short of teachers in America. I understand there is a huge shortage of teachers to keep children uh, in line. There wouldn't be a shortage of policemen to enforce law and order and all the rest of it. Now, the choice is yours. You either keep benefiting from this slush fund or you rebase your social system so that it's healthy and wealthy for everybody. Would you, uh, in, in promoting this uh, solution, would you be in favor of advocating for a distribution uh, to each citizen, a citizen's dividend, as, as has been described by, by friends such as Jeff Smith, uh, is the reason I ask that is when I when I talk to homeowners and, and property owners and you look at the statistics in the United States, for example, the net worth in a residential property comprises the overwhelming majority of the net worth of households. And in the United States, very few households have sufficient income from pension or Social Security benefits when they retire to really maintain a lifestyle. Uh, one out of four seniors in the United States lives on their Social Security benefits alone. And so by taking away their admittedly unearned gains from owning a residential property, residential land, there's nothing left. 
And that's what that's part of the challenge when you talk to people who are 60 years old or 70 years old who are retired and may, in fact, be able to sell their residential property and move into a retirement home. Without that gain, they're left without any assets. How do we get around that? Well, we've got a problem. This is a problem of a perverse system. It's not the problem of a rational system that should replace what we have today. But nonetheless, we have to be practical. We have to find the uh, transitional arrangements to protect people so that they are not disadvantaged by effecting the change. Now, the problem is that, unfortunately, uh, the idea of a universal benefit income pay being paid uh, to everybody uh, is one of those, in my view, escapist ideas. You see, the tech guys, the multi-billionaires in Silicon Valley who are floating this idea, of course, it would suit them because that would imply taxing people's wealth and in doing so, using the present kind of tax paradigm, the present kind of taxes, part of the cost of that universal income is shifted not onto spectrum rents, without which the tech guys in Silicon Valley would be worth almost nothing. Uh, it, it would, the, the, their intention is that the tax to, to raise that universal income uh, should fall on the taxpayer in one way or another. When they talk about taxing wealth, they don't define wealth. They don't distinguish between earned wealth that's based on value-adding activity and unearned wealth based on rent-seeking. There's no distinction, which means that a wealth tax falls on everybody with some assets, including those who earn their wealth, uh, which then means we are subsidizing those who are accumulating wealth out of rents in all its forms. So the debate is a very confused one. And uh, no, I don't uh, support the idea of a universal income because it's dodging the issues. Uh, and we have to confront the advocates. We have to let, say to them. Let sorry, me clarify, you know, what what Jeff Smith and other advocates of this uh, idea in the United States are calling for is not a basic income guarantee necessarily, but a, a distribution of the rents that are collected. So I do agree with you that, that a basic income guarantee uh, has a great many downsides, one of which, if it's broadly distributed to lower income households, will simply cause an increase in the cost of renting an apartment. It will, it will end up in the pockets of landlords uh, primarily. But, but that's really what, not what Jeff is arguing that we should be proposing, that if people understand that once we collect the rents, that they will get a distribution out of that rent fund, that they would be more likely to support the proposal, that rather than the rent is simply collected by the government to do as government always does with the funds, sometimes good things, not always good things. That would be the distinction that, that would be made. Yes, but uh, it's an unreal one. First of all, insufficient revenue would be raised by the modest uh, land tax type of uh, proposals that are being suggested. And that revenue is needed 
to make up for the historical deficits in education, in health, uh, and so on. Uh, I, I dealt with this issue in a book called As Evil Does. My right. argument is, if we've solved all of the legacy problems, if we've paid all the debts, if we've uh, restored our natural habitat so that everything is sustainable, if having done all that, which will require a lot of reinvestment of public money, and if there's a surplus, then by all means have a, a uh, income distributed to everybody. But we all have an obligation, and this comes back to the moral issue. We have an obligation to correct the legacy problems which we, by our silence in the past, allowed to happen. Therefore, we are complicit. We have an obligation to remedy all those past defects, which means we need to raise the revenue to do that, but we need to raise it in a way that actually begins to solve our problems rather than making them worse all the time. Well, let me ask you to give us some advice here in the United States. Our political situation right now is best described as bizarre. The, the two dominant parties are ideologically divided and we have a person as president of the United States who seems not to be based in any, uh, uh, I don't know, pragma pragmatism. I don't know what causes him to do what he does or say what he does or believe what he believes, but we have a very difficult political situation right now. And the response from those not in office is to move closer and closer to the left. What message do we deliver to you know, our elected officials that will have some sway in their thinking on what reforms are really needed? What can we say in this environment where our president just says whatever comes to his mind? Uh, how, can we, how can we shift the dialogue toward a more rational, moral discussion? Well, uh, far be it for me to uh, suggest how my uh, friends in the States ought to go about it. All I can say is this. In the perverse way, I rather celebrated the idea that Trump got elected for this reason. It means that all that's nasty and narcissistic in the rent-seeking culture would be on display in Washington for everybody to see. And that means it's exposed to public scrutiny. But it needs people to actually uh, explain this, to analyze it uh, on an da almost daily basis, pumping out the blogs, uh, explaining exactly why uh, Trump says the weird things he does and the logic behind it. Let's look at one of them. Henry George wrote a book on free trade. Now, what we know about free trade is that the absence of free trade pushes up land values in the protected countries. So when uh, uh, Trump says he's all for America and he wants to bring jobs back to the Rust Belt towns, what he's actually saying is he wants a situation of protectionism that will push up the real estate values, which makes him richer. Uh, I haven't heard on CNN uh, anyone actually make that point, but the Georgist organizations ought to be collaborating to pump out the kind of 
objective analysis that makes sense of what is happening in the White House. And But it would only make sense if you looked at it through the prism of the George's paradigm. And now suddenly the uh, America first narrative and protectionism makes sense from Mr. Trump's point of view, not from the point of view of the people who support him and when he goes out uh, on the hustings, they don't understand uh, his ulterior motive. And it may be that Trump himself doesn't realize, but we should be offering the uh, clinical analysis that says what Trump is doing is actually pushing up real estate values in the United States by arguing for protectionism. That's an example of what you could be doing. Well, your books that you've written over the last decade have made that attempt. And I've read them all, and they're they're convincing, they're hard-hitting. Uh, I've reviewed a number of them as well. Uh, what sort of response are you getting to your writing? And, and as well as the documentary films that you've produced, you know, that are on YouTube and, and available. Um, it's an overwhelming body of evidence that the situation is untenable and that we need dramatic change before we reach a point of no return. Well, uh, the response in the past has been more or less zero because the zeitgeist wasn't with us, right? Uh, people had hope that maybe they could rescue the uh, neoclassical economic system uh, and where they thought they couldn't, oh, well, maybe Marx really did have some kind of a solution. So they weren't willing to entertain a more subtle kind of uh, doctrine that would make them think, and particularly uh, they didn't want to uh, be confronted by the awkward fact that they may be complicit in this present system. But things are beginning to change, certainly in the UK, uh, as I said earlier. And uh, there, we're now, the whole world is facing an impossible situation. Wherever you look, any part of the globe, it's untenable. So we either go back to the 1930s, which frankly we are locked into at the present, or we find a, a vision of hope that helps people to realize that they must reorientate themselves. And so to come back to the work I've done, Yes, uh, it was dispiriting to do all that work and to get almost no reaction. But the work is there waiting for the time when it may become of value. And that time is now. And so, uh, as in the case of Trump, here you have on display all that is horrible about the culture of cheating, the culture of rent-seeking on public display on a daily basis. Well, instead of moaning about it in the way that um, the left does, in the way that uh, the CNN commentators do, quite rightly, in the way that the Wall Street Journal analyzes, again, quite legitimately, there ought to be somebody, by that I mean not necessarily one person, but a think tank pouring out on almost a daily basis the kind of critique that can only come from someone viewing uh, the events in Washington through the Georgist paradigm. Uh, and, and that would help to make headway in the United States and help us here in the UK, because we are all uh, in a, the same sinking ship, frankly, and we, we should be pulling together. 
Fred, your message is extremely important and powerful and timely. And I certainly will make sure that as many of our friends and colleagues and supporters uh, are made aware that we've had this discussion. I, I'm hoping that, that this will be a catalyst for some further, uh, further investigation and discussion. There's an, there's an annual conference coming up in Baltimore uh, where many of our friends and colleagues will be uh, involved in participating. Um, including a few few of our colleagues from the UK will be there and, and perhaps Australia. So hopefully our discussion will at least uh, stimulate some further further uh, discussion and activity on, on the part of the people that are going to meet in Baltimore. And hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again. Uh, your optimism is perhaps um, it's encouraging. I don't I don't know if it will be um if, if everyone will find your optimism as as strong as as perhaps we ought to but certainly you've given us a lot of a lot of courage to go on and truly fight for for what we believe is right so i thank you for very much for taking the time with us and uh hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again uh and get an update and hopefully that update will be extremely positive thank you ed and that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.